Thank you for downloading this podcast from The Reedy Clubby Show on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more, please go to 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk, The Naked Scientist. And it is brought to you by Grolsch Premium Lager. Grolsch, choose interesting, not for sale to persons under the age of 18. Good morning to you, Chris. Welcome. Lovely to chat to you hey, again. Hey, good morning. Yeah, thank lovely. You very, lovely, very, very How are you? Much. I'm very well. Thank you so much. Um, James Bond. Uh, Thomas gets very <laughs> yes. Thomas gets very very excited when you talk about James Bond. <laughs> so I don't know if we should start with the story, get it out of the way, so he can concentrate on the show, or just tantalise him a bit. Go for it, Chris. All right, well, let's substitute Bruce Willis then for James Bond because they're they're equally probably potent in this regard. We're yeah. talking about a paper which has come out this week, Journal of the American Medical Association's Internal Medicine Journal, and it's by Anur Tal, who is a researcher at Cornell. He has found that watching action-packed movies makes you fat, which clearly doesn't work in Thomas's case because mm. he eats a prodigious amount of food and never seems to gain any weight. Yeah. But what they have done in this study is to say, well, let's recruit 94 students from the university, nice homogeneous age-matched group of individuals, rough, rough sort of socioeconomic backgrounds, all the same. We will randomise them into three groups. One group are going to watch a very sedate fairly easygoing American talk show for 20 minutes on telly. The second group are going to watch a a Hollywood blockbuster for 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. The third group are going to watch the same Hollywood blockbuster with the sound turned off. And they they give the groups of students a whole load of junk food and some fruit. They can choose what they want to eat. And they say, you can have as much of this as you like while you're watching the movie. The students don't know this is anything about food. They just just think it's a a study all about watching TV. Hmm. And at the end of the 20 minutes, they say, thank you very much, you can go now. And then they weigh the food to see how much they've eaten. And what emerges is this extraordinary trend, which is that the people who watched the action-packed movie with the sound turned on ate 100% more food than people who watched the American talk show And even with the sound turned off, they ate about 65% more food. So what this shows is that, and what they speculate in the paper, is that the immersion, the distraction of the movie Mm. means that you get so wrapped up in what's happening on screen that you begin to ignore your body's own internal signals saying, stop eating, you've had enough, you're going to throw up. And as a result, you just overeat. So they're saying, do not go into the TV room or the lounge or the cinema with huge portions of food, because you will eat it all, especially if it's an action-packed movie. Women are more resistant to it than men, though, by the way. They compared males and females, and the men ate more than the women every step in the action movie. So men seem to be drawn in to to the movies more than the women did. Mm-hmm. So there's, uh, of course, a, an enduring lesson, and our grannies and mummies were right to say, eat your food, don't watch TV while you're eating. And uh, you can introduce that rule in your home, Thomas, and see how much you eat. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to Ray at University Estate. Good morning. Morning, really, and hi, Chris. I want to discuss tachyons. Uh, these are these particles that apparently can travel backwards and forwards in space and time. And I was just wondering how involved our scientists are in manufacturing and manipulating these particles so that we can eventually get up there and travel through space and go to other time zones and all that. 
Hello, Ray. To my knowledge, uh, no one has yet managed to send anything backwards in time. So I don't think this is going to be the answer to time travel anytime soon. But what I am going to say is that my knowledge on tachyons is extremely thin. So rather than me uh, make up some rubbish which would mislead people based on vague half-truths I have in my head, I would prefer to say I will have a proper look at tachyons and I will come back to you because I don't know enough about them to give you a decent answer. Sorry about that. Sorry about that, Ray. Uh, thank you for the question anyway. Kosi in Bryanston, good morning. Yes, hi, Good morning. Mm, well, go for my it. Question, my question is, you know, the, the, we've talked about this before, where they, like, if you go to VIRT, for example, and they track your genealogical ancestry and so on, and they'll say you've been here and then different countries or environments sort of thing. What I want to know is, is it possible then that my sister and I, for example, have been in different ancestral pools? Or, and, or are we just... Does it therefore mean we are only related in this genetic pool, but we may be total strangers before that? Hmm. Um, who were the two individuals you're comparing again, please, Corsi? I'm just saying, you know where you can go and, and they take your DNA and they, they, then they can say you were in Egypt or something like that related to this? You know what I'm talking about? Yes, yes, but who who yeah. are you trying to compare? Are you comparing yourself with a member of your family or, or with a totally yeah. different person? I'm saying if my sister and I go and have our DNA tested now, is it possible that we before we were related now only through our par- current parents, before that, could we have been in completely different gene pools? Well, the way genetics works is that half of you comes from your father and half of you genetically comes from your mother. And... Therefore, if your mother comes from a very different gene pool than your father, you're going to be a combination of both gene pools. So if, for instance, I married you, then I have certainly Northern Hemisphere, Far North, High Latitude genetic ancestry because I'm about as white and blue-eyed and blonde as they come, whereas someone from Africa is going to have much more genetic diversity because that's where life, modern human life got started in Africa. Therefore, the greatest genetic diversity is seen there. There's also a lot of different genes in African individuals than in high-latitude high European individuals. So you would easily be able to dissect away which genes came from you and which genes came from me and our children, for example. So that, that much would be true. But if I compared me and my brother, because we share the same two parents, I hope, we do look pretty similar, so I suspect that we probably do, um, although that's not a given, then what you would expect to see is that, is that you would be able to dissect out the genes that my mother contributed and the genes that my father has contributed to both of us. But you shouldn't see massive differences. You should clearly see overlap in the genetic fingerprint that, that shows that we both have the same parents. Mm-hmm. All right, our lines are open for you. What do you want to ask the Naked Scientist this morning? 021-446-0567-011-8830702. I have an email here, Chris, from last week's show. Somebody wants to know, is it completely possible to insulate or protect yourself from germs? Can you really have a germ-free zone, whether in a hospital ward or in your kitchen or wherever, your steering wheel, your keyboard? You can do that, Reedy, and it has been done. There was a boy who quite famously was born with a very severe immune deficiency. This is about 20 or 30 years ago, and he was famously known as the boy in a bubble. 
and he was born by caesarean section because if you take a baby out of the mum's womb before it's born via the vagina, babies develop completely sterile inside their mothers and they're colonised by bacteria when they're born. So if you take the individual out that way and then put them into a completely sterile environment, then they will grow without any bacterial colonisation. But it's very, very hard to maintain that sterility. But scientists do it all the time. We make animals that are reared without any bacteria on them and in them in order to do various experiments. The thing is, though, these animals are not healthy. We have evolved over millions of years to live side by side with microorganisms. And we need a whole population of microorganisms to live on us and in us to keep us healthy. They do biochemistry and they do important jobs metabolically for us that we don't have the genetic knives and forks to do ourselves they do it for us and they provide us with trace elements vitamins and minerals that we cannot extract from our food or make ourselves we need these bugs to be healthy so yes you could put yourself in a completely germ-free isolation cubicle it would be possible it has been done for these people with very severe immune problems They're not healthy, though, for reasons beyond the other underlying issues they have. So, yes, you can do it, it, but it's not a good idea. 021-446-0567 or 11-883-0702. Somebody has posted a tweet uh, asking, is it possible to be born with uh, one kidney missing? Absolutely, and this is very, very common. Um, Because you have two kidneys, one on each side of the body, and they actually develop independently from paraxial mesoderm, is I think the embryonic layer that that they come from, then it's perfectly possible that on one side the process that would form a kidney goes wrong and it never develops or you get a version that develops only partially or you get a version that develops and then breaks down. You also get these very weird forms of kidneys called horseshoe kidneys and this is where the tissue that gives rise to the kidney is connected across the midline of your body and so you end up with a kidney that is literally shaped as a horseshoe. It goes from one side across the middle and down the other side. They're unusual, they're rare but they're not unknown and all of those things are possible. Let's go to... um... (laughs) Michael, good morning to you. Good morning, how are you? Fine, welcome. Yes, I just want to find out something about the particle physics. When we look at the black holes, they consume particles. Is there a way in, the, in which the universe replenishes those particles that have been taken away by black holes? Hi, Michael. Well, there's a very good point. Um, when a, a star blows itself to pieces, this is when you have a black hole being formed. And the, bla- the, the, the star has to be a big star. It needs to be at least 10 times larger than our sun and when it reaches the end of its life the pressure of the nuclear reaction in the star compared with the gravity trying to collapse the star the nuclear activity loses the battle and gravity causes the star to collapse in on itself and it forms a black hole. This is a very very intense gravitational well which means that particles and even light can fall into them. Uh, Because they are isolated in space, because that star would have effectively vacuumed up all of the particles around where it was in space anyway, you're not going to have something which is relentlessly going to pull in matter from space all the time. So you won't get the particles which are in the core of that black hole back anytime soon in this universe, but black holes are limited in number and therefore there's still plenty of matter out there and and other things like dark dark energy and dark matter in the universe 
Um, anyway, so it's not too much of a problem. Whether or not we get the matter back in another universe is an open question. Uh, Michio Kaku's book, uh, Parallel Universes, he speculates that at the, uh, for want of a better phrase, arse end of a black hole, there is a white hole which is a big bang happening in a new universe. So effectively a black hole might be hoovering up material from our universe and injecting it through a white hole into a new universe. I don't understand the physics behind that and whether it's even possible, and we mm -hmm. don't even know whether, whether parallel universes are even possible. So that's just pure speculation. Let's go to Gareth in Parkhurst. Hi. Hey, Rudy, how's it going? Very well. Welcome to the show, Gareth. Thanks. Uh, I've got a very important question about spaghetti. <laughs> I was um, watching a documentary on Richard Feynman the other day, a famous American physicist, and during that documentary, Feynman, who loves spaghetti said that at one point it had occurred to him that straight uncooked spaghetti, when you bend it sideways, snaps into three pieces and not into two. And he'd yep. spent two hours postulating a whole lot of theories about why it did this, and he didn't manage to solve it. And I was wondering if since then science has managed to cure this, solve hmm. this big question. Um, yeah, I was talking to someone from Rolls-Royce about this the other day, actually, because they asked this as an engineering question for people who want to join Rolls-Royce as a company, or at least they were. They were asking a whole bunch of recruits who are interested in material science why this might be, just to see if they could reason through it. I can't remember what the explanation they thought um, or they were giving is, um, but I believe that when you snap the spaghetti, basically what you do is you put a stress and a, and a wave of force that goes down the spaghetti and then comes back up the spaghetti, so you get two pressure points, which is where you get the, the piece of spaghetti breaking in two places, so you get the three sections. So if you imagine I apply stress, I get force going down the spaghetti, the force concentrates in two places, and then you effectively break the spaghetti in those two places, basically because you get a wave of, of um, elastic deformation going down the spaghetti, which then breaks the spaghetti uh, where you first flex it, and then in a distant point as well. But I will ask the guys at Rolls-Royce, and the reason that Rolls-Royce are interested in this is because it's an important material science problem. If you apply stresses and forces to materials, how do they behave and deform under those stresses, especially when they have particular stiffnesses? And spaghetti is quite a good example of this happening. But I'll check what their explanation was, but I think, I think I'm on the right lines with that. Thank you very much, Gareth. Thanks for the question. Hey, Very interesting indeed. Who would have known? Stephen in Lakeside. Yeah, good day. Yes. Um, I was actually posed a question by my daughter, um, and she said, you know, she asked me, what is temperature? And I tried to describe a degree, and I found myself totally stumped because I didn't know how to describe it, because what is physically a degree other than what you feel differently against your skin? Hi, Stephen. Um, it's a difficult one, this, isn't it? But the easiest way to think about it is temperature is energy. What is energy? Well, energy is particles having motion, kinetic energy. When we give energy to something, it gets hotter. If we were to look at what the particles are doing, the particles are moving faster, they're bashing into each other and they're bashing into other things around them harder. And this gives more energy to the things they hit. We, we would call this higher temperature. As we take energy away from something, then the particles lose their kinetic energy or speed and they slow down. And you get to a point when they have zero energy and we call that absolute zero, which is why you can have an absolute zero temperature. But the converse isn't true. You can keep giving particles more and more energy and as they go faster and faster and faster, because as Einstein said, you can't go faster than the speed of light, the energy you need to supply to make them go any faster 
goes up infinitely and therefore to get the temperature to go any higher you would have to give infinitely more energy so it would it would tend to infinity but never actually get there Bob in Hermanus good morning uh, good morning yes um, I'd like to find out why water in terms of springs emerges at the top of mountains or the top of hills um, because it seems a little counterintuitive in terms of you know the depth of the water table and water pressures and that type of thing and also atmospheric pressure less as, as one goes higher up Oh, hi, Bob. Well, the reason is, where does the water coming out of a mountain come from? Well, it comes from rainfall. Where does the rain fall? Well, the rain doesn't fall at the bottom inside the mountain. It falls on the top of the mountain, where the mountain's got the biggest surface area to volume ratio. Therefore, especially with mountains like around Joburg, a lot of dolomitic limestone, you've got a lot of rain hitting the surface of a mountain and eroding it, causing little uh, sinkholes and solution channels. So quite quickly the water will unite into little tunnels and form a stream and then come out as fast as it can out of the mountain. And that's mostly going to happen in the upper reaches of the mountain. The water will have exited before it gets deeper down to erode much more. So that's why you'll see most of these springs emerging out of the rock wherever they can, high up the mountain, and then flowing downwards under gravity to lower-lying areas. Thank you very much, Bob in Hermanus and Andrea in Blegauri. Good morning. Hi, hi, Chris. Uh, I don't know if my question is similar to the last one. If you are in the bath and you fill the bath, then you take the plug out and the water obviously is draining out. You switch on the tap and you've got new water. Which water goes down the plug first? The water at the bottom or the new water on the top? Well, you couldn't say for sure exactly which water is going to go where because as soon as you turn the taps on, you're turbulently mixing up the water that's in the bath. And as a result, you're going to get a mixture. Some of the new water is going to go down the plug hole, especially if the plug hole is directly under the taps because the taps, uh, as the water enters the bath, it has momentum because it's falling, it's got kinetic energy, and it's therefore going to sink like a diver. When you see someone diving into a swimming pool from a diving board, they land and go a depth underwater. The water that's going into the bath is also going to go underwater. So therefore it's going to mix but also carry on going downwards so some of that will go down the plug hole as well. So there'll be a mixture, and the proportion of new water versus old water is going to be determined by where the plug hole is, how turbulent the bath water already is, how well mixed around it already is, or how, how much motion there is in the bath, and also, to a lesser extent, the temperature, because water that's hotter is going to sit further up the bath, and water that's colder is going to sit more towards the bottom, because colder water is slightly denser, hotter water is slightly less dense, and therefore the less dense, warmer water will sit at the top and the denser colder water will sit towards the bottom. All of these factors are going to make a difference. Nikki in Woodmead, I'm fascinated by this one. Good morning. Hi, good morning. Um, I listened to your show a while ago and you were discussing um, why small animals and birds die after a few years as opposed to elephants or a whale or something. And the, the reply was um, that their heart rates are higher and there's a finite number of heartbeats and then they die. But why do parrots survive for so long then? 
Well, there's a range of factors in this, Nikki, and we've looked at this in the past, as you quite rightly say, mm. and it's not just as simple as you're born with a set number of heartbeats and your heart's going to beat about three, three billion times or so in a lifetime and then that's your lot. It, it comes down to a range of different factors. A very tiny animal like a mouse has a very high metabolic rate, and the reason for this is that the surface area to volume ratio of a mouse is really high. In other words, the amount of surface that a mouse has relative to the total volume of the mouse means that it's continuously losing heat and therefore it has to run a much higher metabolic rate to keep itself warm and keep itself going. Whereas a bigger animal like an elephant has a much better surface area, a much more favourable surface area to volume ratio because there's more volume to it so it therefore has a lower metabolic rate and its tissues are not running at quite such a high speed and therefore they're not generating byproducts and, and other nasty chemicals that could damage the tissue in the mouse. Now birds are interesting. Why would birds live so much longer? Well, scientists don't know for sure, but lots of birds do live for a very long time despite being warm-blooded, but they're also physiologically quite different to a mammal. Of course, birds are uh, living dinosaurs, as mm -hmm. many people put it, because they're the direct living descendants of the dinosaurs, whereas mammals sort of stemmed off from dinosaurs about 300 million years ago. So we are quite different from birds and therefore to compare how long a mammal lives with how long a bird lives is a slightly fatuous comparison because they are two very different organisms despite the fact they're both warm-blooded. Um, reptiles do live a very long time and since birds are closely related to reptiles this, this may have something to do with it but I don't know for absolutely sure what the current accepted wisdom on why a bird being warm-blooded should live so long but I, I, do, I would say that comparing it with a mammal is a bit like comparing an apple and an orange. Yes, they're both fruit, like they're mm -hmm. both living animals, but they're, they're two quite different types of fruit. Birds and, and mammals are quite different. Thank you very much, Nikki. Thank you for that question. Well, Chris, time flies when you're having fun. Thank you so much for chatting to us. Have a lovely weekend. And we all know what movie Thomas will be watching this weekend. Does it have James Which Bond? Which one will that be? Well, does it have uh, it's going to be Bond? another Bond movie. Yeah, Fair enough. It will be. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> bye bye. All right, everyone. Bye bye. bye.